0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 32, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Rebecca Thistlethwaite, author of The New Livestock Farmer. She currently lives and raises livestock near Hood River, Oregon. She and her husband ran TLC Ranch near Watsonville, California for a number of years, They raise 10,000 broiler chickens every year, 5,000 laying hens, and 300 hogs on 20 acres of irrigated pasture. We discuss the ways that farmers who are focused on livestock as well as farmers who have livestock as a secondary enterprise can make the most of their critter-based efforts. Along the way, we get into the importance of matching the scale of your livestock enterprise to the equipment and infrastructure you have on hand, the considerations of selling meat through different outlets and in different ways, and how to make the most of your water, feed, and fencing. This episode was extremely informative. I feel like I learned a ton about how to raise livestock and a bunch of stuff I wish I'd known back in my sheep and chicken days. I hope you enjoy the show and learn as much from it as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software has a customizable management system to meet your farm's specific needs. CSAManagementSoftware.com. Rebecca Thistlethwaite, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi. So glad that you could join us today from Hood River, Oregon.
1: Thank you how's the weather
0: in hood river in the middle of september
1: oh it's gorgeous fall days warm in the day and cooling down at night
0: and hood river now you guys are are kind of up the columbia river um a couple of hours from the ocean
1: yeah probably three hours from the ocean so we're our climate is a bit more desert like you know high desert climate
0: Okay. So you're not the classic Pacific Northwest. It's probably drizzly and rainy there right now kind of place. You guys are a little bit more on the, on the dry Eastern side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're living on the sunny side.
0: (laughs) The sunny side. I like that's better than the dry Eastern side, isn't it? So Rebecca, you're the author of The New Livestock Farmer, which just came out from Chelsea Green a couple of months ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we used to raise animals in California for a living, and we looked to a lot of great books out there to, to learn how to do this um, and augment our knowledge, you know, books by authors such as Joel Salatin and Elliot Coleman and others, but um, really felt like there wasn't a, a good book out there that goes over the business aspects of raising and selling livestock particularly around direct marketing meat. Um, there's so many regulations and hoops you have to jump through and a lot of logistics management um, that we felt like needed, needed a book around the subject. So my husband and I spent um, all of last year pretty much writing this book together. Um, he wrote the chapters on how to raise animals, and I wrote the chapters on how to process them and get them to market. And we feel like it's a pretty comprehensive guide of, of how to direct market meat and hope that it helps others to to do the same.
0: I like how you say you raised some livestock in California a number of years ago because it, it wasn't what I think most of us in the small-scale organic world would have gone like, oh, some livestock. You had... You had a lot of chickens and not a small number of pigs.
1: Yeah, um, our farm was called TLC Ranch, which actually stood for Taste Like Chicken Ranch, uh, because <laughs> we, we started out raising broiler chickens on pasture, and our customers would always rave about the the full flavor of our chickens and say, "Wow, these really taste like the chickens my grandma used to have in her backyard." You know, so we just thought that was funny, you know, that our chicken. And actually tastes like chicken and um, named our farm after that. Um, and then we started raising laying hens and pigs and a little bit of sheep and a small number of cattle as well. So the TLC sort of became more like tender loving care. Um, but chickens and pigs were our mainstay. Uh, we raised about 10,000 broilers a year. Five thousand laying hens, and we farrow to finished about three hundred hogs a year.
0: Wow, that's I mean that's no small amount of meat.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we discovered that you know there's a certain scale uh, to making money from from farming, and we just had incredible demand in the in the San Francisco Bay Area for our eggs and our meat. So um, we just continued to scale up till we hit what we felt like was was our sweet spot um, in which we could direct market the majority of what we produced. We did wholesale a little bit of eggs and also partnered with a couple CSAs to sell our eggs. But for the most part, I would say 80% of what we produced, we direct marketed to consumers and that was where we found the best profitability.
0: And so when you say direct marketing, is that standing at farmer's market handing people chickens or or how did that work?
1: Yeah, we actually, you know, a couple years into farming, we hired uh, market staff. So it wasn't, um, usually wasn't us towards the last few years of of farming, standing at the farmer's market. We realized that our time was better spent elsewhere or maybe even taking a day off on the weekend. So we had great um, farmer's market staff and we went to... About three farmer's markets a week. Um, We looked for the best farmer's markets where we could clear, you know, a certain amount of money at that market to make it worth our time. So for us, we had to make at least $1,000 for us to be at a market. And um, and we generally sold anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000 per market. And so there was that, and then partnering with a couple CSAs, and then we also uh, partnered with kind of a, a, a produce delivery service um, to offer a mixed meat bundle, uh, which also worked pretty well. And then we sold half halves and whole pigs directly to consumers. So
0: I know a lot of people that do the broilers are actually, you know, very much following that Joel Salvin model where they've got the, you know, you've got the pens and you're moving the pens every day. Was that something that you were doing?
1: Yeah. Our pen design was developed by a gentleman in Oregon. His name is Robert Plamondon, And it's more of like a, a mini hoop house where you can actually walk inside of it. Um, we found that that was a little bit easier on the birds because it, um, the heat didn't accumulate in the pens and it was easier on our bodies to be able to walk inside of the pen. So that way, if we had to pull a bird out who was injured or sick, or when we went to go harvest the birds, it was a lot easier for us to walk inside of the pen. But yeah, we, we moved them one to two times a day. And then our laying hens, we, um, we utilized old cotton trailers that were on wheels and were like eight feet wide by 30 feet long. And each cotton trailer could hold up to 500 birds, um, roosting. And we had, at one point we had a dozen of these cotton trailers spread wow. across the pasture and my husband would move them about every other day, um, with, with our pickup truck, just, you know, hitched directly to the trailer and then our pigs we moved around with electric fencing and they got moved every week or two
0: for for those livestock how many acres were you running
1: amazingly we, we didn't have that much acreage we only had 20 acres of irrigated pasture um, and that was year-round, I should say, because this was in California. So we were able to utilize that pasture pretty much year-round, except when it flooded. Um, and then we also had another property that we rented where we kept our uh, breeding stock, so our sows and our boars, and then we would also brood chickens or chicks at this other property. But the majority of our animals were just on 20 acres. Wow.
0: Wow. That's all. I mean, that is a lot of birds for 20 acres. I mean, he must've had, it it would almost feel like and, I, and without doing any math on it, it would feel like you were probably really loading that down with quite a lot of, of fertility.
1: Yeah, you know, um, towards the end of our, our six years on this on this land, we we came to the realization that we were probably um, applying a little bit too much nitrogen and phosphorus to the land, even though we were moving the anim- animals frequently and resting the pastures. So it probably was a little bit on the excessive side. Um, our last year, we actually actually lowered, we got rid of boiler chickens and we reduced our laying hen flock um, to, you know, better manage the manure on the land. But, um, when you irrigate pasture and you have 12 months of grass production, um, it can actually absorb a considerable amount of nutrients and our, and our pasture went from, it was a former strawberry field. So there was no fertility left when we first rented it. Um, and by the time we left, we had doubled the organic matter in that pasture and it was a beautiful pasture. So, um, I think we did, we did some good things to it.
0: And I... Assume that you were buying in your feed for the, for the pigs and the chickens. That's not something that you were raising.
1: No, um, we, we, we aspired to raise our own grain someday, but really the area that we were farming in California didn't have any grain production and it didn't have equipment. um, and there really was no land available for, for grain production. So we did purchase all of our feed. Um, but we also augmented it with, um, brewers grains from a few different breweries and then, uh, organic produce that we'd pick up from five whole food stores. Um, that really helped, especially with the pigs, to reduce our feed bill.
0: that's really great. So kind of helping to close some nutrient loops, even if they weren't necessarily nutrient loops on your own on your own farm,
1: yeah. it was it was not only a, a key part of our financial sustainability and reducing our our feed bill, but we also felt good about taking, um, material that otherwise would go to the landfill and generate methane. And instead we were making protein from it and, and food for people. So it was, it was a good, good situation. Plus we wholesaled eggs to whole food stores. So we'd go and drop off our eggs and then pick up the waste veggies at the same time. So it, it made, um, made use of our truck.
0: <laughs> right. Right, really, which I think is such an important thing, especially in small-scale operations, as much as it is in large-scale operations, to optimize your use of any assets that you do own.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we tried to make all of our routing, whether it was um, product or or feed or anything, we tried to always have the truck full going and, and coming back to the farm.
0: So, just a couple more questions about about your production on on that farm and just some of the nitty gritty. So, were you butchering your own chickens?
1: We were um, in in California and many other states. About I think it's about thirty seven states. They follow a, a federal law, which um, allows poultry to be processed on farm as long as it's sold directly to the consumer without any USDA um, inspection so we set up a very um, very ad hoc uh, cheap outdoor chicken processing area basically just with like a pop-up tent and some stainless steel equipment and then we just put straw down on the ground to collect the Uh, water and and blood. And then we compost all of that material after processing. But yeah, we'd process usually um, on Friday and then sell those fresh birds at farmer's markets on Saturday and Sunday. So we didn't have to have freezer storage or anything. Um, The four-legged creatures though, the pigs, um, the sheep, and the cattle all went to a USDA uh, slaughterhouse.
0: We raised a thousand birds our first year at Rock Spring Farm, mm-hmm. and and butchered them all ourselves and sold them. And they were—I mean—they were the best chickens that I've ever eaten. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but I—I I always when I when I think back on that, I go back to three things. I mean, a I hauled a whole lot of water in an incredibly inefficient way because we didn't have a watering system that went out to the pasture. Mm-hmm. It was a whole lot of killing. And, and we didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I want to ask you about all those things in orders. How, how, how did you guys manage the water for, for 5,000 birds? I mean, that's, that's a, it's a, they're like vegetables. They're mostly made out of water. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, um, as soon as, you know, my, I, when I met my husband, he'd already raised chickens for a few years and kind of dialed in some systems and he's, um, not a lover of tons of physical labor and as as quickly as possible. He developed solutions to, to make things more efficient, um, and also not destroy his body. So we plumbed a, an automatic watering system for, for all of our animals, um, um, and the, the way that we did that is we took an old cotton trailer, um, that had actually fallen over. So it was kind of junk, but it just served as a base for, um, some big giant water tanks that we, that we put on top of it and we plumbed them all together. And then and we had bellwaters hanging underneath the, the trailer. So they were shaded, um, which kept the water cool. And then then we actually painted the water tanks black so that they wouldn't grow algae and also keep the water cool. And that worked for both pigs and chickens for the pigs. We just plumbed nipple waters, um, onto the trailer. And the nice thing about that is we were able to move the water trailer so that the impact would be spread around the pasture. Because wherever you have water, you have mud and wallows and, you know, just a a big old mess plus a lot more disease potential. So we would move that water trailer just as often as we moved their housing. And um, it worked brilliantly. And it it was very minimal labor. And I think my husband filled up the tanks once a week and just every day he'd just give a quick, you know, one minute inspection of the waters and make sure they were all working. And that was about it. So he 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 immediately developed solutions to save save time and and reduce the amount of um you know, hauling and and stuff like that. He did the same thing with all of this, all the feed. Um, We use giant 300 um, pound range feeders that only had to be filled up once a week. And we also got um, grain tanks right away so that we could buy feed in bulk and transport and move around feed in large containers instead of dealing with feed sacks thrown over our shoulders and stuff.
0: You you did the water um, by bringing basically allowing the chickens and the pigs, or at least the laying hens and the pigs, mm-hmm. to move to the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were doing the broilers in more of a chicken tractor style setup how did you get the water out to them
1: uh, same thing we we just ran hoses from these tanks to um, to their chicken tractors and we hung a plus on bell water in each chicken tractor um, and you know moved them sort of like an armada across the pasture you know we'd have anywhere from 10 to 15 of these all right next to each other um, so that we could have like one hose running behind them with, with smaller offset hoses going to each bell water in each house. Um, so, that was all automated as well.
0: I really like that you mentioned that, that Jim would go and check all of the different waterers to make sure that everything was working right, because I think that's so important. Anytime you have an automated system is having a, a backup mechanism, a way that you're, you're monitoring the performance of the system rather than just trusting it to take care of itself.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we feel really strongly in that sort of a management intensive um, uh, farming system. So, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of uh, physical labor involved, but there was a lot of daily observation and making sure birds were healthy and checking the waters and all. All of those things we, we feel is really important because, you know, every once in a while there would be a hiccup in the system, uh, you know, have a hundred degree day and find out that a bunch of the waters are broken on that, on that one day.
0: Because <laughs> that, of course, is the day that the chicken waters break, right? Of
1: course, it is. Um, and, you know, we did, we did have some occasional losses. Uh, we, we had one situation in the wintertime where uh, a big rainstorm caused our entire pasture to flood Um, while we had a bunch of broiler chickens out there, um, there was only about an inch of water on, on the pasture, but broiler chickens are so stupid that they won't stand up in the water. They'll just lie down, you know, with their breasts on the ground. And we lost a bunch of birds, um, that way. So, you know, you have to be, you have to be out there every single day checking on the animals.
0: Yeah, I, I I do remember uh, some pretty sloppy uh, rescue <laughs> efforts inside the inside the Salatin style pens that we had for raising our birds. When you get yeah. a few inches of rain, things yeah. things weren't really pretty. <laughs> yeah. So how how about the killing? Was that something that you guys just did yourselves, or did you bring in help with that?
1: Yeah, um, I actually had a full-time job at the time, so I didn't get to enjoy the killing myself. I would get off work and then come help with the bagging and labeling. But my husband did it with one hired uh, woman, um, and they would go through usually 100 to 150 birds um, on Sometimes up to two hundred on a given day, just the two of them um with a uh, you know stainless steel um scalder plucker well first kill cones, then uh, the scalder plucker, and then tables evis- evisceration tables and you know um he did it for a few years and finally got sick of it. And we did a little bit of um, financial analysis looking at his earnings per hour of labor invested, because I think that's an important metric that farmers need to look at for every enterprise is you know, how labor intensive are those enterprises and what are your earnings per hour? And he realized, we realized that um, he wasn't making enough per hour to justify that enterprise anymore. So that's when we actually decided to drop the broilers and focus more attention on the layers um, because there's considerably less labor involved and there's not the weekly killing, which started to get old for my husband processing thousands and thousands of birds. So, and there was no USDA poultry plant within probably six hours of where we live. So it wasn't an option to go anywhere else.
0: Well, and it's such a problem if you're, if you're operating on any kind of a small scale to find somebody who can, who can handle, a large enough number of birds in a licensed facility and then, and then be willing even to deal with you at a hundred to 125 birds a week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a duck processing facility that, that we t- talked to and they wanted a thousand bird minimum and we could bring them a thousand birds, but we couldn't sell a thousand birds in a weekend to farmer's markets. And so then we'd have to get into the whole business of freezing birds and having good vacuum sealing. And so that really wasn't, wasn't a good choice for us, but I would say the chickens were were a good sort of entry level enterprise for us to start with. They were very low capital. I mean, you can start with chickens with almost nothing. Uh, the turnaround is great for cash flow, um, so I think it's a good way to kind of get your foot in the door. Plus, having chicken at the farmers market, you can get into pretty much any farmers market you want, and consumers love. Chicken you know it's the number one consumed meat these days so it's a great way to establish your customer base but in the end it it just didn't make sense when when there were other things that we could do yeah. um, that had better earning potential
0: well and, and I actually spent a day uh, working in a in a chicken processing plant out in Maine um, where we farmed before I farmed in Iowa and it was amazing how, how much a little bit of investment on their part really paid off in terms of the efficiency of the butchering operation. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things where you, you you have to get the numbers right with Mm -hmm. that to justify making the kinds of investments that you need to make Mm -hmm. and to make the operation efficient enough to really be able to justify putting the owner's labor back into it. Mm -hmm. If that all makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and because we were leasing land and we had a year-to-year lease, um, it made no sense for us to invest in any sort of real either processing infrastructure or even, um, you know, winter shelters for the birds that were more permanent. Um, any Anything like that, it just didn't make any sense for us. So we had to keep everything pretty light and mobile and inexpensive. Um, so that, that was a drawback for us. I, there probably were things that we could have done to, to make the chicken operation more efficient and then make his earnings better. But um, we kind of racked our brain for years to figure out what we could do. And and it wasn't g- going to happen with a year-to-year lease. So.
0: I think this is a challenge that a lot of people are in, uh, especially as beginning farmers, mm-hmm. that that land access issue. Um, you know, and and probably I would think less of an issue with with livestock. You guys weren't certified organic, were you?
1: Um, our our uh, eggs were certified organic. Oh, they um, were. Okay, yeah.
0: so you had to have organic pasture.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the land was organic. Um, it was owned by a nonprofit, and they got all the land certified organic. So that that wasn't an issue for us, but um. I would say, just in our travels and interviewing farmers around the country, that um, livestock producers actually have more of a challenge finding finding land um, and you know getting themselves into a either a long term lease or purchase agreement because with with animals, you know, there is some permanent infrastructure that you eventually are going to need, whether it's um, you know sorting. Sorting infrastructure like corrals and head gates and all of those things for when you want to load your animals up onto the trailer, Uh, building processing facilities, winter shelter, fencing, um, all of those things typically require, you know, a long, long term lease situation. And it's that's increasingly hard for for beginning farmers and small farmers to be able to find
0: like a lot of beginning farmers, we started off with vegetables and sheep and Mm -hmm. pigs and chickens (laughs) doing layers and broilers. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, going to Tom Franson's farm in Northeast Iowa. And Tom Franson Mm, is a very well-respected organic hog farmer. And I think you actually write about about his livestock handling system in your book and, and like helping him sort pigs. And we were, I mean, you just, you just sorted the pigs and it was like, it was like nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it was so easy. And then going back home where we had four pigs (laughs) and trying to load ours up to take them to market. (laughs) And it ended up being an almost a half a day affair, Oh yeah. uh, you know, at the end of what was a typically exhausting vegetable farming day in Mm -hmm. October when there was a ton of work to do to get the crops out of the field. And, and I remember my, my partner, we, we'd had three of them in the truck, and finally she's she starts screaming at this pig, this last pig that wouldn't come along. She's like, I don't have time for this and she grabs the pig by the ear and hauls it onto the trailer, just and the pig horse is just squealing and and, and, and she's she you know, she's cussing at the pig and, and I was like, This just isn't worth it You know, and and I and it, it was something we we limped through livestock for a number of years, and gradually we dropped the broilers, and then we dropped the laying hens, and then we dropped the pigs, and then we finally got rid of the sheep, mm-hmm. and and just focused on the vegetables. But we were always up against this this infrastructure issue mm-hmm. of how do I actually make this this. How do I make the livestock efficient when I've got all of this other these other places where I'm investing my income? Mm -hmm. You know, where I was taking the profits from the farm, plowing them back into new tractors, new cultivating equipment, new hoop houses. And there was we just weren't making enough money on the livestock to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And and I think this is a real challenge that a lot of farmers have when you're when you're getting started because you have to get a I mean, not only do you have to have the land tenure, but you have to have that that critical mass of livestock that makes it worth investing in that handling system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I see a lot of farmers trying, like, like you mentioned, trying to do too many different animal enterprises, especially at the beginning, beginning before they've got that experience um, before they've had the opportunity to, to build the infrastructure. Um, so I, I recommend, you know, at almost this is true for everything, but starting out small with with fewer species, um, make your life less complicated and, you know, just try one thing at a time or a couple things at a time and then do that end of the year analysis where you actually look at your labor, your labor investments and you look at your um, cost of production per Per animal species, um, and see you know which one's profitable overall, and also which one is making you the best income you know per hour of labor invested, and then you can start uh, honing in on the ones that are most um, profitable for you, and also that you enjoy as well. You know, if you can't stand raising. Raising sheep, for example, that's that's a species that we struggled with because they always tested our fencing. Um, we eventually, oh God! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we eventually just swore them off, like we're never going to raise them again. And actually, we're raising them now because we have this amazing deer fence um, around our entire property that we got a small USDA loan to pay for. But it's a permanent fence and it's six feet tall, and those sheep can't touch it. You know, we've also got an electric offset wire on the inside of it so they literally don't touch it but only now will I consider raising sheep when I have that kind of um, fencing so so yeah you have to look at the profitability you have to look at whether you like the different um, enterprises and then hone in on on the best mix and so for us it was the laying hens and the pigs were our bread and butter. And then we would only raise about 30 sheep a year just so we could have lamb at the farmer's market. And we also raised about five um, Jersey bull calves every other year. Um, and the, the cattle were really just for um, for mowing down the grass so that it was shorter for the chickens. So, um and they were really hands-off, like very, very easy to raise. We honed in on what worked best for us. So even though our customer base wanted us to raise every meat out there, you know, when are you going to raise ducks? When are you going to raise rabbits? Um, when are you going to have more grass-fed beef? We realized that we didn't have to produce everything. And then also we started partnering with a couple neighboring farmers. So we got the majority of the grass-fed beef that we sold at the farmers market was from a neighbor uh, Joe Morris who is an excellent cattleman has has he's like a fourth or fifth generation cattleman he knew what he was doing much more so than us and he had thousands of acres of land so instead of us trying to to raise grass-fed beef on 20 acres of land, uh, we partnered with somebody who was better at it. And um, that that turned out to be way more profitable um, and a lot less headache for us than trying to do it ourselves. So those are the kind of decisions that you have to start making um, as you get more experienced.
0: So Rebecca, what I'd like to do now is, We're going to take a break and get a word from our sponsors. And then I want to come back and talk with you about how you're going about the determination of what your most profitable enterprises are and what you found from working with a lot of livestock growers over the years makes the difference between a profitable livestock enterprise and one that's just paying the feed bill. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont's Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort VMix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent, fantastic product year after year, and in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software is designed from the ground up to manage the CSA you operate from customer sign-up right through delivery. Farmigo staff will work with you to customize the dashboard for your farm based on the way your CSA works. System setup is free, and the system can be configured for a wide variety of CSA models from the traditional box plan right through fully modifiable boxes. On the customer side, Farmigo offers a portal for members to sign up, make payments, and access their account to manage vacation holds and site changes, all with control by the farm over what can be changed and when the changes can be made. On the farmer side, you can send fully customizable confirmation emails and auto responses and generate reports to help you manage everything from harvest and loading the truck right through delivering the CSA shares. And they offer amazing customer support to you at no charge. They'll even call you if you need help. Learn more at csamanagementsoftware.com. All right. And back with Rebecca Thistlethwaite now. Um, Rebecca, we said we were going to talk about how you go about determining what's a profitable enterprise on your farm, uh, particularly when you're dealing with livestock. And and then I want to talk a little bit about what are the key elements of profitability in a livestock operation, or maybe I should even say a livestock enterprise. You talked earlier about sitting down with your husband, Jim, and figuring out that the time that he was spending butchering the broilers wasn't paying for itself and you guys deciding to get rid of that operation. What, how did you guys, what, what kind of records were you keeping and how did you go about that record keeping to make that happen?
1: Yeah, so we um we didn't do this all the time, but periodically we would keep um logs of our labor. Um so a couple butchering sessions we we kept track of of how much time Jim put into it and then also um how many how many hours he put into a flock of broilers. So if you have the broilers for 8 to 10 weeks, you know, how many hours did he actually put into that flock divided by the number of birds to find out how many hours per bird. And so that way we could very easily see, given the revenue that we generated per bird, what that equated to in terms of his hourly wage. And... It wasn't that the broilers didn't make any money. It's just that we set a bar for ourselves um, that we needed to make at least fifteen dollars an hour uh, for our time, and the broilers were making less than that. So, that's that was a pretty easy decision for for us. Top off with the fact that my husband was just getting thoroughly sick of killing birds. Um, Yes. I was,
0: I was the bird killer on my farm (laughs) and I know, I know how that you kind of, the first few it's kind of, I mean, it's almost kind of fun. Like you're like, Ooh, I'm getting in touch with life and death. Uh And and then, and then after, you know, after six or 800 birds, it's like, it's like, okay. Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and think of doing thousands every summer. It's like, oh, yeah. this, this is too much. So the, he, he didn't like it and he wasn't making enough money per hour. So that was a pretty easy one for us to drop. Um, and then in the laying hens, we bought a, an old um, egg washer actually off of a, a bankrupt turkey farm. Um, Jim picked it up for 100 bucks because it was lying on its side, kind of all decrepit and rusty, and fixed it up and that made our egg operation um, scalable so before that we had I think we had maybe 400 hens and we were washing the eggs by hand literally every evening we'd sit there watch television and have buckets of eggs in front of us in a wet rag and we'd be washing it by hand Um, so which
0: I mean so what kind of television is the best for for washing eggs?
1: I think we were watching um, that show 24 I don't know if you remember that but Oh, yeah, that was a pretty intense yeah, show. That exactly. actually okay.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was a, a rare time in our lives when we had cable. So, yeah, sat there and watched TV and washed eggs. But realized quickly as our daughter started uh, growing and commanding more of our attention that we weren't going to be able to sit there and wash eggs for a couple hours every night. She wanted us to interact with her. So uh, we found this egg washer and fixed it up, and then we were able to, get thousands of birds Um, but the interesting thing about the egg washer and I kind of use this as as an illustration of finding the correct scale is that that egg washer was perfect when we had about 2,500 layers but it was too small when we had 5,000 birds Um, we ended up having we hired a couple employees about three years into the business and these two guys would spend eight hours um, a day between the two of them running the egg washer, washing and packing eggs. And then we looked at the math. Unfortunately, we waited till the end of the year to do the math. We should have been doing it more often and realized that we could have bought a brand new egg washer with a much higher capacity um, for the amount of money that we spent on these two employees (laughs) so but it was too late at that point you know we'd already spent the money on these employees and that's when we decided to scale back down to 2,500 birds because that was the number that was the sweet spot for this egg washer where we wouldn't spend more than a couple hours a day on the egg washer so you have to look at you know it's sort of a combination of of your land resources your infrastructure um, your equipment and find, find the appropriate scale. Um, I'll give you another example of finding that scale. So we used to buy our, our pig and our chicken feed in 50-pound sacks when we first started. And then we quickly scaled up to um, tote sacks, which were, I think, 300 pounds um, or three to 500-pound tote sacks that they would bring out on a flatbed truck. Right. And then we scaled up to bulk feed, um, because we could get the cheapest price for our feed if we went to bulk. Um, But bulk feed meant 24 or 26 tons at a time. Otherwise, the truck wouldn't come out. Um, to our farm because it was a couple hours away from the feed mill. So we had to scale up a number of animals to consume that much feed in a month because you basically don't want to be storing feed for longer than a month where it starts to because go Because ranc-
0: once it's ground, it's going to get rancid yeah, on you. if it'll you, start to go rancid. Store-
1: so that meant that we had to go buy some big feed feed tanks um which my husband is is a whiz at going around to derelict and defunct farms and offering farmers you know a couple hundred bucks for their old equipment so we got those for a great price i think we had a 11 ton feed tank a six ton and a seven ton one and set those up and then we had to make sure the the driveway was passable for the feed truck, which wasn't always easy. Um, in the wintertime, especially, um, and create kind of a pad uh, for the feed truck to go and and um, auger all the feed into the tanks. So we had to we had to build that infrastructure, and then we had to have the right number of animals to go through that amount of feed. So I'm I'm constantly talking to farmers about oh our feed bill is too much, and I say well where are you getting your feed? Oh well I'm going down to my local feed store and I'm buying you know 10 50 pound sacks at a time. I'm like well, that's your problem number one. Is one you're not valuing your time. You're driving to the feed store once a week, and you're um, buying the most expensive feed you could possibly be buying because you're buying it at retail in small quantities. Um, and right. you know there's all that labor invested of hauling around feed sacks and hurting your back and stuff. So, <laughs>
0: well not to mention that whole like pulling the right string on the feed sack oh, like that God. took me 2 years just to figure out which which was the right way to open that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So when we when we consult with other farmers that's usually water and feed are the are and fencing are like the three main things that we help farmers deal with. Um, and Right away, we noticed that on, I don't know, about 90% of the, of the animal farms that we visited that they don't have those things right, and they're doing, you know, really inefficient things, not really valuing their time, um, and often cases, you know, doing things that are really hard on their body or hard on their, their truck or their equipment, um, and spending you know, spending retail, you know, buying feed at retail price, basically. So you have to figure out, you know, can you scale up to get to the point where you can start buying feed in bulk, where you can automate your watering systems, where you can invest in better fencing and handling equipment, you know, and buy a livestock trailer instead of throwing the pigs into the back of your minivan and, you know, all of those things. And that's when you get to that scale that, I think for most farmers, you'll start to see your profitability increase. Um, but on the other side, you also have to have the market for that that amount of meat or that amount of eggs. So that's a whole other component that um, I haven't even discussed.
0: We found this. You take eggs to farmer's market and people are really excited about the eggs. Mm-hmm. And but it very quickly turned into for us, a we ran into handling problems with the eggs. You know, how do we get enough eggs to farmer's market safely Mm -hmm. in combination with our vegetables? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, You know, even with the chickens, you know, when we we had this issue where we were just we did most of our marketing in Minnesota, our farm was in Iowa. So we were crossing state lines. And how do we get people out to the farm? And Uh, there was just this whole there was a whole lot of juggling that went on to try to make that marketing work. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really well, God, I think I know you're not supposed to be able to have multiple weak links in an operation, but Mm -hmm. I think it was it was very close to our weak link in our livestock production was that we, when we scaled up the eggs to a point where they became efficient, it actually pushed us into the wholesale marketplace. Mm -hmm. And then that wholesale, we were selling primarily to one account. They took a hard right turn and said, we can't afford to buy your eggs anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. We want to buy, you know, we want to buy pre-cracked eggs from the, you know, from the wholesale distributor. We don't have time to crack eggs. So that actually, we were left sitting on a whole bunch of hands that Mm -hmm. we had nothing to do with the, I guess, um, Let's talk about that marketing and evaluating your market, especially in light of the fact that natural and organic meats and eggs are so much more widely available than they were even five years ago now.
1: Yeah yeah that's true there's there's certainly a lot more competition now um, than even when we were farming and you know we we had a very special marketplace I mean we were within a couple hours of the San Francisco Bay Area, which is you know considered sort of a, a mecca of of enthusiastic customers who have money so I do realize that you know the prices that we commanded there are not going to fly in a lot of this country. Um, but you know, it, the key is, and, and you alluded to it, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket and, um, you know, relying on one market to move the majority of your eggs was problematic for you. And we ran into that a couple times early on, um, we were working with a butcher who was was uh, processing all of our pigs for us and selling the pork. Um, and then he found another supplier who could provide them pigs for, you know, a couple dollars a pound less, and just completely dropped us when we had several hundred uh, piglets on the ground growing, you know? So we quickly had to regroup and start um, selling retail cuts of pork at the farmer's market. So, you know, we had we had a variety of outlets uh, from selling whole and half animals, you know f- what people call freezer meat or bulk meat, um, to selling retail cuts, to doing these meat bundles um, with a with a CSA. Um, so there's there's a there's quite a variety of, of of great markets out there. I talk about them in my book. From creating you know your own meat CSA to potentially partnering with an existing vegetable CSA that has a you know well established clientele and adding like a meat mixed meat bundle onto their CSA. Um, but in terms of profitability, we, we discovered that half and whole animals were the most profitable for us and required the least amount of logistics, you know, the, the least amount of, um, having to store meat, um, the more, you know, the more you have to store meat, the more it, either freezer space you have to have or that you have to rent. And it also means a lot of handling, like going and getting meat to bring to the farmer's market each week. Whereas if you sell a whole or half animal and your customer picks up that packaged meat directly from the butcher, you're not handling it at all. So that cuts out a lot of your costs and you're also not sitting at the farmer's market all day. Um, So that, that is a great market. Um, you know, there's sort of a ceiling to how many animals you can move that way. But I think farmers starting out especially should try to move as many animals as they can through friends and family networks and selling half and whole animals.
0: You mentioned pricing, Rebecca, and, and um, I think a lot of times people are tempted to go after the the way that's going to make them the most cash dollars, which is probably selling those animals by the piece at farmer's market and mm-hmm. capturing all of that retail upside on every, on every cut that you can. Um, how, how do you go about setting pricing? I mean, I, if you, I mean, you're saying that you'd rather see beginning farmers focus on, on selling holes and halves or quarters. Mm-hmm. And, um, how do you, how do you go about that pricing piece? How do you decide how much how much each animal costs to produce uh, what kinds of overhead you need to allocate to the, to the animals. And then how much of a margin you're going to get?
1: Yeah. So um, I think figuring out your, your costs per animal is essential at the beginning before you ever set a price, you need to know how much it costs you. So, you know, you can take all of your direct costs and then a percentage of your overhead kind of depending on what that enterprise is, what percent of, of overhead you should attribute to that enterprise. Um, and then come up with, it doesn't have to be, you know, down to the penny, but uh, a, a pretty good ballpark um, cost per head, um, and then you can easily figure out about how many pounds of meat um, or saleable product you can get from that animal. I have a, a table in my book that shows you know what the percent yield is per animal species. So say you have um, say you have a, a sheep and your final yield is uh, let's say it's fifty percent of the original live weight. Um, so in you know, you have a hundred pound animal, so you end up with fifty pounds. Now let's say forty pounds of saleable products. Um, and if that animal costs you $200, so it's 200, you know, divided by 40 pounds. So that is, that is the price that you need to make. That's your, um, break-even price.
0: That's your break-even. That's probably before you're getting yourself some labor or getting, getting any, any compensation for your labor or your risk or your investment at that point.
1: Yeah. Usually, um, you know, if you have hired labor, that would be built into that price, but your personal labor, um, some, some farmers add that. Into their costs and other farmers wait until their net profits to pay themselves. So, you know, you know, you break even price, say you want to get 30% net, which is what you think will cover your labor investment um, and um, give you a little money to put away in the bank Um you can go even higher. It's perfectly fine to set whatever percentage you, you feel you deserve. Um, I would just caution farmers not to, not to make it too low. (laughs) Is is there a percentage uh,
0: that you recommend? Um,
1: no less than 30. Um, because if you're not, if you're not able to put away money, you know, for future investments, then you're never going to be able to grow your business. Um, and if you're not paying yourself, then you're better off not farming at all and saving your money for other, <laughs> other investments. So um, at least 30 and, you know, grocery start Stores charge 50 to 60 percent margin, so there's no reason why you couldn't do the same. The thing is, you obviously have to test it out in your market and see if it'll fly, and if it won't, you know, you have to adjust it accordingly. Um, unfortunately, I see way too many farmers coming up with prices arbitrarily just based on their competition um, or what they see in the grocery store. I live in an area right now um, where I probably wouldn't bother selling eggs because there are so many hobby and backyard producers selling eggs for three or four dollars a dozen, and I know that there's no profit in that, so um, that's not something that I would want to compete against. And it's really unfortunate how many people, you know, don't charge. Uh, enough to cover their costs and and give themselves a profit because it just hurts everybody else. But um, yeah, I, I encourage all the listeners out there. Please do not base your pricing on what you see in the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, base it on your actual cost of production plus. A profit margin. Um, but that said, if your costs of production are ridiculous because you're only raising, you know, say you only have, um, you're only raising five pigs a year, and your cost per head is much higher um, because you have to take that small number of animals and divide it against your total overhead and you know, all your land costs and all of that, then your costs are going to be very high and it's unlikely that consumers are going to be willing to pay for that. Um, and that's where you know finding the appropriate scale is important um, to spread those costs out amongst more animals. Um, You know, like if you're raising a thousand broiler chickens and you up it to five thousand, your costs are not going to go up that much. Your your overhead, Um, your direct cost, obviously, your feed, your feed bill will be much higher, but it's not going to take you that much more time and your overhead really shouldn't go up. So that's. Going to mean that your cost per bird is going to be a lot cheaper, and um, that's where you're going to be able to start to to find some of your profitability. And okay, so that's a very long winded answer to no, your question, but, but <laughs> I think that's good.
0: I, I mean, it, I think it's a it's a question that deserves kind of a long winded answer mm-hmm. because it is. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's a lot of other elements that go into profitability, mm-hmm. but it really all does come down to price. I mean, you could be the most inefficient producer in the world mm-hmm. and have the crappiest watering system and the lowest feed conversion mm-hmm. ratio yeah. and spend all of your time chasing sheep that are out. <laughs> but if you can charge $10,000 for a lamb, sure. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. It's so, true. I mean, it really does come down to pricing and, and it's the same thing in vegetables. I mean, you, you, you know, and getting nailing that price is really, I think what allows you to, to optimize, both the number of animals that you're selling or the number of units of whatever it is that you're selling and the profitability per unit. Mm-hmm. I mean, those, it, those two things have to go together. I mean, obviously you're going to sell more eggs at $4 a dozen, than you're going to sell at six. Yeah. But-
1: and, 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 and pretty, produ- and a lot of animal producers are attracted to, the high retail prices that they see on on cuts of meat. You know, we could charge, uh, you know, $26 a pound for lamb loin chops or, uh, you know, $30 a pound for beef tenderloin, but that doesn't mean that you're going to actually make more money on that animal because you have significantly more costs involved with getting your animal's fully processed. Um, not only do you have to pay for all of the, all the processing, you know, the slaughter and the butcher and the packaging and the labeling and the cold storage and the transportation of that meat and the cold storage back at your farm. Um, and typically you have to have a license to be able to store meat on your farm. So you have to go through some hoops to do that. Um, but there's your marketing costs as well you know, driving to the farmer's market, setting up, paying the stall fees, um, paying the insurance, all of that. So.
0: Well, and the risk I think that's involved in selling at retail, because that's a lot of what the margin that you, that a retailer gets is for the possibility that their food is going to go bad in the meantime, or that that tenderloins aren't going to be as popular as you thought they were, or that you still have to figure out what the heck you're going to do with the beef liver.
1: Yeah. With the rest to so the animal, and there is some loss involved. Um, you know, we we would typically either you know use those thought out packages to trade with other mar- farmers at the market to get stuff that we didn't grow, or we would give those to our market staff to take home as just like their bonus. So it wasn't um, it wasn't really a big loss for us, but um, but there is you know there's rainy days where you're you're sending someone to market or you're standing there at the market. And you only sell a couple hundred dollars worth of product, so now you got to lug all that product back, stick it back in the freezer. Every time you pull a package out of the freezer and stick it in the cooler and lug it to market and then bring it back, is is means you're degrading the um, quality of that package. So after it goes to market a couple times, you're probably going to have to eat it. So right. <laughs> take all of those things and that potential loss, and you can get rid of all of that if you sell halves and wholes. Um, So, especially when you don't have the number of animals to go to the farmers' market, you have to have a lot of animals go to the market because you have to have good s- selection um, for you know however long that market season is. So that may require quite quite a number of animals. but you know if you've got less than ten head of beef or thirty head of sheep um, or probably, you know, 20 head of pigs or less, you you are much better off selling them as halves and wholes or quarters to people and, and save your time um, instead of sitting at the farmer's market.
0: Rebecca, you said earlier in the interview, you mentioned three things that you end up helping farmers with. And I'm going to assume that these are probably three important keys to profitable livestock production then is the water, the feed, and the fencing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I really love in your book, because I'm always all about capacity, how much am I going to need? And and you actually break down how much water per head of livestock you're going to need every day mm-hmm. for, for all of the different species to cover. And you cover pretty much. I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything that I'd want to raise that, that you didn't cover in your book. <laughs> um, what are the other considerations with regards to water besides the labor saving that we talked about earlier?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, There's the temperature of the water, so animals will not consume really hot water Um, So that can be really problematic in the summertime, uh, especially if your water lines are on top of the ground and are heating up under the sun. Or if you use water troughs that just sit there uh, without any sort of recirculation, they can get really hot. And if the animal is consuming less water, it means it's not going to process its feed as efficiently. Um, and if it's a breeding animal if it's you know a pregnant female um, it can have gestational issues if it's not consuming enough water so that that's really essential and then there's also the wintertime issues you know you live in in Wisconsin so I imagine you've ran into this but a lot of uh, farmers run into frozen water lines um, so you have yes. to come up with a way to keep your your water thawed out um, so that the animal will, continued to consume lots of water. Um, and then, uh, you know, another issue is water quality. So if your, if your animal's drinking water that's dirty or been sitting there for a while, or if it's like an open pond or a water trough that's full of algae, um, you know, that can actually be toxic to the animal. So uh, you'll, you may have to put some sort of aerator in, in your pond or in your water trough to keep the water quality up.
0: And and what about feed? Cuz I mean obviously that's the major input cost on on most livestock? I mean, anything that anything that you're not just grazing, anything you're feeding grain to, you're going to be spending more money on, on the feed than you spend on anything else, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, because we raise pigs and chickens, which are um, monogastrics, they're not ruminants. Uh, they can only get a, a small percentage of their diet from, you know, the vegetation that's growing. Um, or in the case of the pigs, we'd run them under oak trees um, to eat acorns. But that's only, a portion of their diet, so they are going to have to be supplemented with with outside feed, um, and that feed bill can can make or break your operation. Uh, you know, it's typically 50 to 60 percent of your cost of production, sometimes even more if you're not uh, having good you know feed conversion ratio. So that that impacts a lot of things um, from from the choice of, of breed that you use um, and how efficiently it converts feed and also how quickly it grows. Um, It impacts, uh, you know, your logistics of, of handling and delivering the feed. It could be very labor intensive to, to put feed out for your animals. Um, And it's, it's Often the thing that I see um, make make people get rid of animals is <laughs> the cost of feed. Uh, I remember one year, our biggest year of production, our feed bill over the course of the year was a quarter million dollars.
0: Wow. And that, and that was on how many dollars gross?
1: That was on uh, around a half a million dollars gross.
0: Wow. So 50% of your gross sales were going to paying for the feed bill.
1: Yep. Yep. And, and that's one of those things that really keeps you up at night. I mean, when you have when you're past due on a bill that's twenty five thousand dollars, and you're like, "How am I going to pay for this?" It? <laughs> it's it's so stressful. So.
0: Um, well, and if you're looking at a, if you're looking at at, at two hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and you can make a a one percent improvement in your mm-hmm. feed conversion, I mean, that's a substantial. Uh, adjustment to your bottom line
1: absolutely yeah and and here's the deal if you're spending your the, the good majority of your day doing chores what i call working in the business you're never going to have time to kind of step back and figure out how to make those those bigger improvements or how to work on efficiency or how to find a cheaper feed source or a better way of conveying it to your animals So that's why I I talk about in my book, how you, you have to figure out how to get your chores down to no more than four hours a day of your time, because then you'll, then that will free up the time for you to work on the business, which is, you know, those bigger scale improvements, the marketing, the financial management, the things that CEOs and business managers spend time on. So, um, So one of the first things we help farmers do is how to make their chores more efficient. So that's the fencing, that's the feed, you know, logistics and the watering, automating the watering. And then once you get those chores to a manageable level, then you can kind of step back and and look at, uh, you know, some cost saving measures like finding a better feed supplier or buying your feed in bulk or using more waste feed products. So we started picking up, um, you know, spent grains and waste produce from grocery stores. But that took us a few years to get to that point. You know, first we had to buy a truck with a lift gate, a big flatbed truck with a lift gate. And then we had to get these big um, garbage cans. On on wheels that we would bring to the grocery stores and they would dump the uh, Whole Foods would dump all their waste produce into these. Um and then we had to hire a driver to go and pick it up twice a week and, you know, all of those things took took a lot of time. Um but but ultimately they were able, they allowed us to reduce our feed expenses a lot especially for the pigs and and then our profitability just shot way up on the pigs so it was it was worth it
0: and then what about fencing what are the what are the key elements to think about with profitability with regards to fencing
1: we're We're real strong believers in electric sensing and especially when you are first starting out and perhaps you're leasing land or you're maybe you own land but you're not exactly sure uh, what enterprises you're going to do for the long term so instead of going out and spending tens of thousands of dollars on permanent fencing, why not spend hundreds of dollars on portable electric fencing? Um, And that just gives you so much more flexibility for um, moving your animals and uh, kind of designing the layout of your farm. So with electric fencing, that not only allowed us to really – Easily move animals and, and quickly too. You know, it would take us, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes to set up a new um, pig fence area, and, and that would be it for a couple weeks. So, a lot less labor. Um, it also would allow us to rotate our animals onto, we had a couple other vegetable farmers leasing land on the same ranch. So, we could run our animals on their vegetable fields after they were done harvesting. Um, for our animals to glean all the waste produce and fertilize their fields. So electric fencing made that possible. Um, and then when we pulled up stakes and we left that property um, after leasing for six years, we were able to just pull up all the electric fencing and sell it. Um, so we were able to, you know, um, uh, you know regain regain some of our investment. Um, whereas if you built a permanent fence, that obviously couldn't happen. So, um, but now, now that we own a piece of land in Oregon and we have a permanent fence, I am thrilled (laughs) of having a permanent fence now, but I I do think it requires either a long-term lease or ownership of land before you make that investment. But now that we have a permanent fence, uh, we do all of our cross fencing with electric fence. So, We have an electric offset wire on our permanent deer fence, just on the inside, a single strand. And we clip onto that when we're setting up our cross fencing. And um, it's really easy.
0: So you're not having to use a portable fence charger anymore. You're able just to tie into the one that's that's always set up.
1: Yep, and it and it's a plug-in charger um, that's running the the perimeter. So it's um it's much higher powered. So
0: got a lot of juice in there. Yeah, when our yeah. animals
1: touch it, they they don't go near it again. So we're not. Changing How about it again. you?
0: Would you touch it? Do you go near it again? <laughs> you know, that's the thing I don't like about electric fences. It
1: hurts. I know. In all in all my years of farming, I have yet to touch an electric. fence fence. My husband, on the other hand, has touched it many times, but that's what muck boots are for because you can literally stand on your electric fence to walk over it and you won't get a shock.
0: Okay. That's, that's the tip of the day right there. (laughs) I like that. Um, So Rebecca, would you tell us a little bit now you alluded to you're not farming uh, on that piece of ground where you were in California. TLC Ranch is, is not in business anymore. Can you tell us why you transitioned out of that? And about where you've ended up now?
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, it was a combination of factors, but primarily uh, uh, our land tenure situation was year to year lease, and we looked for six years to purchase land somewhere within a couple hours of the San Francisco area um, so we can continue to market there. And just, we really could not find anything. Um, A lot of the good land around there is used for high value vegetables and strawberries. And we we couldn't compete with those prices. And, you know, they wanted $50,000 an acre. Um, So that really wasn't an option and year-to-year leases were starting to drain on us. Um, we couldn't build uh, handling and sorting um, infrastructure like corrals and such to make it easier to load our animals. Uh, we wanted to build a winter barn, and we couldn't do that. So that um, that really kind of sealed the deal for us. And then um, the other factor that, that finally made us throw in the towel there was crime um our last year production we had 300 laying hens stolen we had a sow a prize sow and all her piglets stolen we had our atb stolen uh, a bunch of other things um it was yeah pretty tough area to farm in so
0: yeah, that would that would kinda of take the fun out of it right yeah, there. Yeah,
1: the fun the fun was gone by then. So we decided we wanted to live somewhere a little bit um smaller, more rural, more family friendly. And I grew up in Oregon, so it wasn't a hard decision for us to come back to Oregon. So we were able to finally purchase some land. So we have five acres now, and um, I'd call it more of a farmstead, uh, not not fully a homestead because we do sell some products. Um I have a, a little vegetable stand in town that I operate in the summertime, and um, we do sell a few animals, mainly through bartering and trading with, with neighbors, um, and then we put up a ton of food and are feeding ourselves. So. That's great, and now we also have have the time and energy to uh, explore some funner projects. Like we're building a smokehouse, and we built a curing room, so we're we're dabbling with curing our own meat now. And um, doing kind of more of a permaculture operation. So, you know, raising worms for compost and ducks um, in our pond and running pigs under the oak trees to eat acorns. And, yeah, it's, it's fun. That's <laughs> <Fun's> really, <back. laughs> it's really
0: fun. It's kind of nice to, to step back and... and, and uh sometimes and and find the joy in something rather than just having it be this, the grind of trying to, trying to make a profit
1: at it. Yeah, absolutely. And we still, you know, we still think about raising animals again, commercially. uh, We have a few neighbors who have land that aren't using it and have talked to us about, you know, putting sheep or cattle out on their land. And then, Uh, Where I live, it's primarily oak savanna, so it'd be great for running pigs on acorns. And we've ran a few batches of uh, American guinea hogs exclusively on acorns and then cured the hams from those. And the ham is just exquisite. So, you know, that's something that we, we sort of ponder. But then, you know, the practical side of me comes back and I think about all the regulations that we'd have to jump through if we wanted to do any, you know, meat curing or value added products. So we'll see. We'll see what our future holds.
0: That's great. So, right now, I know that your future holds uh, a lightning round like we do at the end of every show. (laughs) So, um, what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Uh, I would say the. The scythe, the European scythe that we have for chopping down cover crop.
0: Was that something that you used in your commercial operation or is that something that you're just using now?
1: That's that's one of the fun things we get to play with now that now that we don't have the pressure of, of farming for for our income.
0: <laughs> Great. Great. And what's your favorite livestock species?
1: Pigs, without a doubt.
0: And is there a particular variety of pigs or a particular breed of pigs that you like best?
1: Uh, The American Guinea hog is our new favorite pig because it is a great forager and you can finish it completely on acorns. Um, They they don't beg for food like other pigs and are really self-sufficient.
0: And what is it that you like about pigs?
1: You know, they're they're smart. Uh, They have great personalities. The American guinea hogs in particular are like big cats. They roll over for belly rubs. They're just the sweetest things ever. Um, And they're actually really easy to fence in with electric fencing. We only have to use a single strand of electric fencing. So they're way easier than, than most other species.
0: Yeah, that nice big snout and the and the nice firm contact with the soil yeah, is really a exactly. great a great thing about pigs, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And uh, if you could choose a farmer superpower, what would you choose?
1: Oh gosh, um, being able to put thoughts in people's heads, being able to plant. Uh, desire for our products and consumers' heads. They'll walk by our, our farm stand and just have to eat what we're growing.
0: Be more than happy to pay $24 for that, exactly. for that lamb chop, Exactly. Not, top, not right?
1: even blink an eye when they pull their checkbook out. Just sign it over. <laughs> I like it.
0: And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing before you got, got into all of this stuff, what what would you tell yourself?
1: Um that it's not all rainbows and unicorns, uh, that it's it's really hard, that if, if you don't want to work 12, 14-hour days, seven days a week, it's not the lifestyle for you. So get ready for some serious hard work.
0: <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 32 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Thistlethwaite. You like how I made that sound really easy? Her name is spelled T H I S T L E T H W A I T E or you can just enter 032 in the search bar on the episodes page. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmer dot com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. It's worth noting that the show does take a substantial amount of time to produce. Our sponsors like Vermont Compost and Farmigo CSA Management Software for this episode and Fertrell Osborne Seed Company, Second Cup Media and Audible for previous shows really support this work. Accessing their web pages through the show notes page and the sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement. And of course, so does mentioning that you hear their ad on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Please let them know it would mean a lot to me. You know what else? I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. I know a lot of things, but I know that I don't know all of the great farmers out there. Please visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com and use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear. You know, we just went over 50,000 downloads for this show all together this last week. It's really great. I want to thank everybody for all of the support. I've really gotten so much great feedback about this. I've really have had so many generous guests. I mean, every now and then I just kind of go, wow, this is really cool. And it couldn't be really cool without you listening to the show. Thank you very much. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.